From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Season 2 of the Korean American Perspectives, a podcast by the Council of Korean Americans. My name is Abraham Kim, and I'll be your host for this podcast, which seeks to explore the complex issues that shape the Korean American community and share the inspirational life stories of its leaders. Today, we're pleased to interview Monica Kang, author, founder, and CEO of Innovators Box, a creative education firm that promotes sustainable change at the level where it matters the most your mindset. Through creative workshops, group activities, and tools, Innovators Box seeks to help all professionals hone their creativity and problem-solving skills in the face of change and complexity. Over the last four and a half years, Monica's company has helped over 15,000 leaders around the world in over 20 cities. She is passionate about the idea that every single person on this earth is innately creative and that creativity has the power to solve every organization's challenges no matter the industry. With her corporate clients, she helps leaders of various organizations develop creative cultures, encourage workers to be courageous and risk takers, and support managers to build bridges across the increasingly diverse working environment. If you struggle as a leader to build a creative culture for your company or to teach your employees to be more innovative, well, this is the episode for you. Sit back and enjoy this interview with an amazing Korean American who ultimately found her calling not as an artist or a performer, but as an executive teacher, facilitator, and coach who helped other leaders find their creative voice in the workplace. Without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. This is the Korean American Perspectives with Abraham Kim, Executive Director at the Council of Korean Americans. I have the privilege to be here with Monica Kang, uh, CEO and founder of Innovators Box. Welcome, Monica. Thank you for having me. Well, let's get started from uh, with our interview uh, from the beginning. Uh, tell me about your immigrant experience. Um, were you born here, or or did you immigrate to the United States at a young age? So I was born in Washington D.C. And uh, my family used to live in Fairfax, Virginia, but my family also moved back to Korea pretty much when I was young. So I always felt a mix of, I'm either too Korean or too American, but neither in between. And so that's been part of my identity when I think about my immigrant So experience. how old were you when you moved back to Korea? Um, I just finished kindergarten and I started elementary school in Korea. So okay. Did you go to foreign school or did you go to Korean school? to Korean public school where mm. I was basically not saying anything for my first year. My parents used to say at least my listening was good enough. So I would come back home every day, speak to my parents in English and say, this is what my teacher said. This is what I'm supposed to do. So I'm going to go in my room and now do my homework. <laughs> and then if I, if, when they talked to the teacher, they said, yeah, she didn't say anything today either because my Korean wasn't good. Hmm. And then after that, I picked up a little bit. 
So you lived in Korea for how long before for you came? For about eight years. I left, um, well, I came back to the States, quote, quote, to study abroad in middle school uh, so that I can come to high school here for ninth grade. Okay, so at eighth grade, you essentially came yeah. back and you lived, did you go to boarding school? Or yes, because okay. my parents were actually still in Korea. And so mm. when I talk about that identity, at that point compared to my Korean-American co- classmates, I was like a yuaksing, which was like, you mm-hmm. know, coming from Korea, except my passport was American. So I wasn't feeling some of the visa issues was compared to my Korean yuaksing friends. Mm-hmm. So your, but your English was still intact or? A mix. Um, I used to always tell this story that how it felt a weird mix of I could, I could speak with like an American accent. But I still didn't get the jokes. I also, and up until this day, I still hate the mom jokes. I thought I was so disrespectful. (laughs) And that was like the joke that people would communicate as a way that you're in and you're out. And I wasn't in because I didn't get it and I still didn't like it. Uh, But I, I was able to relate to a lot of the other cultures because I still grew up with, um, uh, a lot of the TV characters. I watched Barney when I was growing up. I watched, you know, the um, Sesame Street. I watched all the Disney movies. So I could sing along with a lot of the songs that all my friends would sing as we go to the sports mm. games that a lot of our international friends couldn't because they didn't grow up and share the same experience. So I always felt that I could relate to these things with this group, but not fully. And then same thing backwards. But it permitted me to start being curious about being that kind of bridge builder. So where did you go to boarding school? Uh, Madeira School, which is in Virginia McLean. So DMV area uh, is actually a family like close to me. Okay, so that was a day school, not a boarding school. It was a boarding school. It was a boarding school. It has boarding and day school. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So how was that? At such a young age, you left home. Uh, It was tough. I am so gracious for my parents for now being courageous. Mm -hmm. Now when I think about my friends who are at that age sending their kids away, the number one thing they say is like, oh, I don't want to send my kids anywhere. And I'm like, I think I would feel the same way. I don't know how my parents had the courage to do it. Mm. But I'm so grateful because I remember they sat down with me and said, you can have a choice. You can either go to an international school here if you pass the grades (laughs) and then choose to live in Korea or, you know, look for new opportunities elsewhere in the States if you get into a school there. So they gave you the option to leave or stay. Yes, which was... Not easy for them either, but Mm -hmm. that I think was one of the many decisions that I'm grateful for, where I could see they took a lot of courage to help me keep choosing things that would be more opportunities versus putting me in a box Mm -hmm. of a definition of what a successful career or life is. Mm -hmm. And so even throughout my career, I remember always having conversations where I'll go back to the drawing board and I'm like, I think this is what I want to do. Or like, I think this is what I choose, which was always not the traditional path and i'm grateful they were open and willing to listen and consider some a little bit more with multiple conversations than Mm -hmm. others but always grateful for that so do you feel that you're having left home so early and really growing up very fast Mm -hmm. as a young child uh, kind of had to uh yeah as a a 13 year old um How, how did that shape you as an adult today? I mean, do you feel like the work you're doing, kind of the way you think about the world, really was shaped by really leaving home at that such early age that helped you to, I guess, help you to think 
how to solve problems, right? Yeah. And and you you had to. It was survival essentially for you, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I used to tell my friends, I think up until even grad school and even now, once in a while, is in a way, high, because high school was so tough, it almost prepared me for life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was tough not just because of the school curriculum, not just because it was a girl school, which is a whole other conversation. It both has opportunities and challenges because we're competitive and you put all type A type of amazing girls in one school where it gets very um, competitive and that's hard in a teenager time. But also because I had to really think about all these things. And so... Um, it's funny, I think looking back, you know, we all think, or at least I don't know, for me and many of my friends, I thought I already grew up. And so when I went to college, I'm already old enough. Now I know all these things. And each year, I think in each, you know, few years, I look back and say, oh my gosh, I was so naive. I thought I knew everything. And so I think those lessons make it more humbling. Um, even now, as I continue to go through different challenges and work with different people in different communities, it reminds me that you can't always assume what you know. Um, and it's, it's always different. So, and then also it's, so life is so short to not have fun. So I try to think more about that because I think I was so focused in high school and college to just like try to fit those perfect criteria. like, I got to get good at grades. I got to make sure I do the best, but does that always bring me the greatest joy? Sometimes not. And I could have enjoyed high school a lot more if I didn't stress out so much. And so I think about that, but in a way equally grateful that I got to think through those things because of that. So it's kind of both. So because you grew up fast um, at such a young age, do you feel like uh, perhaps this better prepared you for adult life? Or did you feel like maybe growing up fast put additional pressures on you as you were going through adult life? It's a great point. And in a way... I wish somebody had this conversation with me when I was in college because it certainly was a double-edged sword. Um, like, you know, we were just talking, I, I, you know, I was better at doing my laundries, making sure I cleaned my place and, you know, making sure I look at my schedules and stuff like that so much better than others because I got used to taking care of that by myself, you know, making sure you get to the airport on time and not miss your flight. I still have before but you know still the fact of small those logistical things put you in better place and um emotionally as well because you know frankly it's even in college as you meet more people and especially at boston university there's a lot of different type of people in a huge school so i didn't get along with some people and they didn't like that and so i was going i had some ostracizing moments but because i've learned a lot in high school i kind of learned how to just ignore it and you know the thing I learned about ostracizing is if those who are trying to ostracize you don't see the results they want because you just ignore what they're doing, then it's not fun for them. So they stopped actually ostracizing because it wasn't fun for them anymore. Uh, but I learned it the hard way because I went through a lot of that challenge in high school. And so at college with more people, if I didn't get along with certain people, I just knew that as long as I was keeping true to myself and learning how to be a better person, I can just keep finding better people elsewhere and not just feel crushed by this small group of people who just didn't like or didn't fit in a box a certain way. So that part, both emotionally and logistically helped. I do think I 
overly stressed myself because of that in a way that I have to do things even better. So I stressed about needing to do my homeworks even faster, like needing to get better grades, like making sure that I was always helping other people and, you know, being mindful, which meant less time for myself. Um, and so I think it was only halfway through later in college where I wanted to make sure I dedicate time for myself, which meant I'm not going to be embarrassed if I just really don't want to go to a party. I just really don't want to go to this party. I shouldn't feel embarrassed about it. But I hated when people made me feel embarrassed. Like, oh, you should come party with us. Why? Like, are you being like weird for not wanting to do that? Um, so those are kind of the dual aspects that I think about it. What did you study at Boston University? Uh, international relations and minor in Chinese language. Did so? Did you? Um, it's interesting. You studied politics uh, while you're going through this experience. Was yes. that intentional or uh... <laughs> all political from the beginning? Right. <laughs> uh, I I studied because I think when I shared about even my high school experience, I thought a lot about how I was always the bridge builder, mm -hmm. whether I was misunderstood and I hated for that. Or I was the one who successfully helped two different people understand. At Madeira, one of the things that was really cool is you get a chance to intern in a couple of different places during your Wednesdays and during the co-curriculum. And I never forgot how when I got to intern at Capitol Hill, one of the conversations we had was how I was sitting in the room where we had a Korean politician and, you know, our American representatives, you know, help connecting the dots. And we had a formal interpreter but there was just something in the way how that conversation was communicated. It just, there was a cultural nuance. Yes, like the word-to-word -word translation was correct, but the nuance was not. And so after the Korean delegation left and I knew my representative was a little perplexed and I remember communicating back to him like, hey, actually, I don't know if it's my place, but I just want to explain culture-wise the reason why this person said ABC is because of this culture and context. And he was like, oh, now I get it. And I never forgot that moment up until this day because it reminded me of how powerful it is if you can be that bridge builder. And knowing how I even loved just doing those simple tasks at Capitol Hill made me realize I really want to learn how it works bigger context globally. And that's why I pursued international um, affairs mm -hmm. uh, and continue to pursue that as my career because I really wanted to be a diplomat and thought that was the only job that I would love. So you went to, did you go to graduate school immediately after undergraduate? I, I thought about it, but I worked for a little bit, one, because I wanted more experience, and two, because I didn't get it the first year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so for those who applied and didn't get it the first year, that's okay. It's all coming for a good reason. I was grateful to have a chance to work in three different places before I got to grad school. After I graduated, I interned at the State Department in D.C., so I got the D.C. political scene right directly again. Uh, didn't get my clearance in time, so I had that freak-out moment. So anyone else who had that, that's uh, completely normal. Um, got to also work in Geneva at the U.N., so got my European taste of it. And then the international organization had tons of chocolate. That was great, too. <laughs> and then went to Korea, actually, to work at a newspaper organization and got to learn about that aspect um, as well as uh, helping out with an educational program. So how was it working in those three different international environments. Did you feel, I mean, did you feel like your training from, I guess, from high school really prepared you for that international scene? Yeah. Um, I, I still tell this to people, but 
I literally felt like I had multiple identity crises throughout my life. I was either too Korean, too American, too something, too something not. So I was the um, kid, I think, when I was interning at State that I just didn't learn, know enough of the professional lingo. So I like was really grilled on making sure I learned that. I thought I mastered it and now I went to the UN in Geneva and now like I'm way too American at everything I did. I, I was working during lunch and like, you don't do that in Europe. You're supposed to take a two hour lunch break <laughs> and you're supposed to get to know people. Um, when you socialize, you're supposed to like ask people what their you know, real life is instead of just working. And I had another cultural reverse shock when I went to Korea where it is actually working hard. And I remember one incident... I almost forgot, but I was, I was reminded because, um, like we went out and in Asian culture, you know, socializing an important piece where you bond and really get to know. And I remember how, uh, we went out all for drinks, um, with, uh, this delegation who international delegation and with my team. And I kind of what got worried cause I don't really drink a lot. I, and I, I didn't drink at that time. So it seemed a little concerning. I'm like, why are they drinking so much? Like we're having a very important conversation. But as soon as the delegation left, I realized how serious they were about business because as soon as they left, it was as if night and day, they were all back to business. I'm like, okay guys, let's do team meeting right now. And we just went over the entire dinner situation where, okay, you saw that cue sign. That's what this meant. Like, okay, tomorrow you want to, should have this paper done. And I was really impressed with that dedication. Um, but the summary is had multiple identity crisis reminding that, wow, I don't feel like I fit everywhere, but in a way I fit everywhere. And two, there's just always something more to learn just when I thought I figured out. Hmm. And that I think two kind of ex comment stuck with me as I continued to go, because I actually continued to go to places where I was either a minority or I was doing something for the first time. Hmm. So, after that experience, you returned back to Washington, D.C., and you were at Johns Hopkins uh, University, SICE, which is a very well-known international public policy program here in Washington, D.C., and, uh, and then you were there uh, a couple of years, and then you went into nuclear nonproliferation afterwards? Yes. Tell me about that. How, how did you select <laughs> that career after uh, grad school? Well... The one thing that inspired me from those different jobs before grad school and as I was at grad school was just remembering how important it was to have that voice and being in the position to share that different voice. Uh, if I didn't work at the UN, I might not have understood that cultural context of how Europeans work differently. If I never worked at a newspaper agency in Asia, like I would have never understand how the socializing is very serious business connection to what you're doing in the daytime. And I think that nuance permitted me to understand I'm learning about all these things, but I know there's places where these people don't know this. And I wanted to figure out how can I be that voice? And I found that in politics, we tend to see a majority of, you know, white male experts talking about all these things and particularly of nuclear security i just found that all most of the experts were uh white male and i wanted to see how me learning about these things could help bring a different insight and thought you know might as well for if i'm paying for tuition I might as well learn something i really don't know so that's why i chose strategic studies military security 
got pers- uh, pursued that career and really enjoyed learning and working where you're connecting the dots mm. among different people. But you went from there <laughs> and you did a dramatic shift to uh, consulting, uh, creative consulting or innovation consulting. Mm-hmm. Uh, walk me through that journey. How did that go from guns and bombs over to <laughs> uh, helping people to solve problems in their organization and companies? It's funny because hindsight vision 2020, I don't think I would have ever told myself that it would have made sense to do it. But what really triggered me was I was in a job in a career I I loved, but I was very depressed and I was literally crying to work every day. And I, I thought to myself, if I worked this hard to get here, there must be a better way that I can start and live my day than just like crying and feeling miserable at work every day. And I didn't appreciate when people said, oh, it's because you're a millennial. You just need more like clear purpose in life. And I'm like, I have a purpose in life. I'm like preventing nuclear weapons. <laughs> I'm making, I have great colleagues. I get to travel around the world. Everything on paper made sense. And it wasn't until I kind of really took a couple steps that helped me rekindle to relove my job. And when people ask, what was that? I realized for me, it was creative mindset. And that's when I got curious, well, how can I help many more people because I know many friends of mine going through the same thing, but I know there's tons of other people that I have never met who might just want to learn how they can bring out their best potential and not feel like they're stuck in a box. And that's how it made sense now looking back that because I had all these different experiences working in different industries, different communities and age groups that I felt comfortable recognizing all the different pain points and listening to them. How can we help everyone speak their voice? But there must have been a uh, an experience or something that kind of mm-hmm. helped catalyze all this or galvanize this to say, I'm going to do something in the creative space. I mean, it's one thing, you know. I'm I my background is also in security studies mm-hmm. too, but it you know, but I went from guns and bombs to <laughs> you know think tank world. I didn't yeah. go all the way to you know creative consulting, and so there must have been like a, a defining moment or, or something that led you saying, I want to do this in a completely different area of uh, industry. Yeah. I think it was two parts. Mm-hmm. One, the particular trigger moment that helped me change my negativity to positivity was actually because of those decision of, I just wanted to get to work in a different way. Cause crying in the bus every morning was a little embarrassing. <laughs> So it really started with one question of like, okay, how do I get to work? I know I'll probably feel miserable today too, but maybe if I walk to work, less people will see me. That's going to be less embarrassing. (laughs) And so that's actually how my first decision started. But then because of that small decision, I had to change a couple other decisions, which is I had to wear warmer outfit or actually thinner because now I'm walking at the heat or the cold. I had to wear comfortable shoes. I had to actually know where I was going because now that's a two-hour um, commute instead of just like a 90, uh, an hour commute. And I would just then need to make sure, do I need to bring a separate outfit or do I have to make sure like I, you know, I pick up coffee or breakfast on my way. And so what I quickly realized is that because of that simple decision, I had to change all these other behaviors. And over time, what I quickly realized is that that's the power of the mindset. 
we think about like wanting to be healthy, like physically healthy, and we talk about all these different great ways to do, but it really starts with one action at a time, one decision and one habit at a time. And recognizing that I got to experience the powerful transformation that I was personally going through. And the second piece that really inspired me to maybe help this as a business was because as I was going through that transformation, more people were asking me, whatever you're doing, you seem significantly happier. You're more productive. Is there a way that I can learn how to do that? And I just started having conversations within small groups. And every time there was always one or two people who just came up to me and said, like, Monica, I just have to tell you, I've worked in these number of years, but the way you explained it is the first time I ever understood how I can be creative. And I think those comments and my experience of the two gave me the courage to think about, well, I know this is important. It's clearly something I don't see in the market and people are giving me feedback. There's some piece that I can do well in the way I thought was naturally best. So that gave me the courage to figure out what can I do that in translation to the business? And so I think that's what helped me get into it. So tell me about Innovator's Box. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a decision at some point that you decided I'm going to leave government service and I'm going to go start my own company. Um, tell me what, what, what precipitated that? Um, was there, was there an event or, and, and what, what were you feeling at that time when you were launching your new company? I just didn't have any more free vacation days to run the business because <laughs> I was running it part time. Um, I am a believer, even for friends who come up to me now and say, Hey, I have this great idea. Like, when can I leave my company? And I say, that should never be your first question. Your first question should be, how long can you do it while you have your day job? And for me, that was eight months. Um, and I, I would have done it even longer if I could. Um, but basically anywhere that was outside of my nine to five jobs at my work, I thought everything about innovators box. I spent all my hours and energy all weekends. Um, and that I just realized how much joy it brought to me. Um, and, impact from the few events that I could do. And so that's where I got thinking about how can I do more of this, but am I financially ready to? And so that's where I was being mindful to use my vacation days. And because I was a workaholic, I had a lot quite left. So I would use that to do conference traveling or, you know, uh, attend programs where I can craft my skills, whether as a facilitator or, you know, get my coaching certificate, as long as it doesn't clash with my day job. Uh, and use that in a useful way. And so as I end up using all my vacation days, I realized I had a client project that I needed to be available in the daytime. And that's when I realized, okay, if I really need to be available for this client who's going to pay me into this event, it wouldn't make sense for me to take another sick day, which I didn't have anymore. Um, and so that's when I had to say farewell. But if I had a little bit more bandwidth, I would have tried to hold on a little bit more because mm. it's a huge learning curve. Mm. So how long has Innovator Box been in existence? So since then, now it's been a little over four year and a half. Mm-hmm. We've done over about 300 plus uh, sessions around the world in 20 plus cities for about 15,000 individuals around. And I have now six different products. Um, I have a book and then also being book translated. And so still got a lot more to do, uh, but hugely yeah, humbling. Tell me a little bit about the book and yeah. how your book shapes the different things that you do. Yeah. So the book is rethink creativity and I wanted to write it because I realized there's still so much misunderstanding on creativity, innovation, 
And I struggled for a little bit. I know there are tons of other experts out there. I know there's tons of other books on innovation. And the number one question that somebody asked is like, why do we need another innovation book? And while I thought to myself on that, I realized, well, if we were already good enough, we wouldn't still have the majority still believing that they're not creative, that it's not possible, and that I'm not creative. And as long as that's true, there's a reason why I think the way I've been training and being able to providing the service and the work that we do. And unfortunately, since I can't be available to every person every moment when they need it, that's where I thought the book can be a powerful resource for those. So whether they need to read something at the middle of the night and be reminded how you know powerful and unique their insights are, or somebody who's feeling stuck at a workplace where everyone is discouraging them and they just really need to build that resilience. My hope was stemming from that because I was that very person. I just really wish somebody was out there to remind me that everything that I was asking and questioning was normal and that I just needed to rechannel my creativity that I didn't know at that time to find a resource and be a problem solver instead of just complaining and feeling limited. And so that was the vision was for the creating the book and hence focusing on how do you bring creativity in the workplace, but also staying resilient as an individual. So the work you do is doing these seminars and training programs for companies and nonprofits and other organizations. Um, so, uh, and your work takes you not only uh, to companies here in the United States, but also abroad to Asia. Yes. I, I'm, I'm curious, as you're working with these different communities, um, do you find um, differences in these communities, how they approach creativity and what are usually the hurdles for creativity in these communities? Absolutely. I would say environment plays a big role because as Jim Rohn said, you know, we are the product of the five people we surround ourselves with. And if the five people in the five messages we receive society is that, you know, you can only do creativity if it's art. You can only do this if you have a doctor degree. You can only do this if society gives you an approval stamp. Then even if you didn't believe it at some point, you gradually kind of buy in or have a difficult time disproving it because you're just so used to hearing it all the time. And unfortunately, society-wise, we have that notion, but even more so in Asia and I know that pressure because I grew up in Korea as well, that you know, societal expectation of what it means to be successful. And I think because of that, it has made hard for certain people to try something with more risk uh, that is more courageous. And whenever I meet those individuals, it's credibly empowering. But at the end of the day, the conversations we often have with is with one another is then at the end of the day, how do we continue to stay resilient? Because the surrounding that we live in in Asia it's discouraging of that. We talk about innovation all the time, and yet individually, it just seems anything you do differently, it's like, wait, why are you standing out? You don't fit in our box. Like, And that question makes it hard for certain people who just didn't have that support system to say, that's okay. Like, You can still stand up even if you hear those things or know how to contextualize those inside thoughts into a practical business lesson or tool that they can implement in a business culture. And so that's something that I take a careful eye out. Reverse wise, I would say the challenge in the States is a focus on individualism. And so I think a lot about how, while Asia is very good with the community aspect, um, sometimes that pressure of wanting to think individually has made it hard to understand how to relate community. And so I think of that angle a lot more when I work with the clients here, 
um, and think about how can I help them see that every action they take has a ripple effect effect across the different networks they work with. And so it goes back to that story that I thought about even way back at Capital. I'm still being the bridge builder. It's just a different context. And now I feel that it's not that I gave away my you know, interest in diplomat. I'm just playing that role now in a different context and being a bridge builder across these different communities. And so, um, I, I feel grateful that I think I had to go through everything so that I can do this work in a more thoughtful way. So how do you stimulate a culture of creativity in your organization or company? Um, do you find it different between say a nonprofit versus for-profit or you feel it's pretty much the same across the board? It's certainly different, but it's different because it's more because people are different. Um, I think it's another way of saying like when my favorite question I like to ask is like, how, how do two people stay best friends? Like how do, how does a marriage become successful? How does like a friendship become successful? How does parenthood become successful? And I bet you can ask six different couples, six different families. You're going to get completely different answers. And we don't think for a second that's weird because it's normal. We're all very different people and we're different for different reasons. So the beauty of it is more of how do we make sure we understand and embrace these differences and find a solution that works for this group. So the number one advice I usually share with my nonprofit friends is like, don't try to be a company that copies Google. Yes, it's great what Google has done, and I hugely respect that. But what you need in your nonprofit is what works for you with this budget, with this people, with these resources. In a way, because you have constraints, you have to be creative, and that's actually where the joy is, not the concern. Same with corporations. Actually, because you have a global employee base. Um, This virus situation actually is a perfect case where a lot of companies are really thinking about this more deeply as they're seeing more of their employees teleworking, as they having to now transfer their meetings to virtual conferences, how they have already built trust among their employees and how they have encouraged and discouraged one another is making that transition even easier and harder. So if you already have a good sense of trust among your employees, then it's a lot easier. Now, that being said, as you probably go back to the same scenario, there are certain elements that consistently show up, even in good relationships and good trust among friendships. Same thing in the culture aspect. And I would say that curiosity, uh, that open-mindedness, that trust, of course, technically, you want to have some structures that permit that, but a lot of it is these softer, quote, quote, softer, because it's actually hard to do these softer skills that exist, that permits the culture to organically grow and evolve. Uh, And I think that's the perfect example of where creativity ignites because creativity simply means that you are thinking differently and you're permitting people to think differently, to think of new solutions. But if they are forced in a structure, they are forced to do certain things, how do you expect them to be creative? If you didn't give them room to heal from their discouragement over the years from other places, or even from a different boss they had. How do you expect them to have the courage to speak up now? Because they're just hurt. Um, They need time to heal. And if you're not giving them space to embrace that, then no wonder there's a little clunkiness in the culture. So as you're working with these different communities, uh, you had kind of alluded to earlier that 
perhaps there are some, um, there are all generational differences too in terms yes. of creativity. And Absolutely. Five generations now in the workplace. And so how, I mean, what do you do to help bridge that between the generation? How do the different generations think about creativity differently? They certainly think differently, um, differently in an aspect of what they think is possible to how they might think is the right way, and three, how it should be rewarded. Um, what helps them get over those differences, I think, is having a space where you're just understood and appreciated, which goes back to one-on-one communication. Because of the way we rely so much on technology, I think it's so, so important that we have even more strong, clear communication. Like just knowing that, okay, we've now sent five emails and it's not going anywhere. Can you just pick up the phone and just talk to this person? Uh, Knowing that if you felt like, you know, there's just something that doesn't feel right, that you feel comfortable to just grab a hold of this person and say, hey, can we just have a one-on-one chat for a second? I just felt like something was off right now. There's a bit of tension I feel here. That's all communication. And I think no matter what generation or what background somebody is, when they feel appreciated, when they feel safe, uh, and, and I know in psychology term we call this psychological safety, you're more likely to speak up, share your honest thoughts, be comfortable disagreeing, but walk away with an agreement. And I think that's the key element that truly helps whatever the background or generation is to connect the dots. And I think that was the reminder because I usually work with people who are probably 20, 30 years older than me. And I know sometimes people ask me like, how do you make sure they respect you? And I'm like, well, the first thing is we have, I have to remember that they don't want to talk with me because of my age or like how I look. They're talking with me because of my expertise and I better make sure I'm damn good with my own expertise and learn my craft. And the number one thing I could do in respect of their time is showing the respect to know how I can help them. Mm-hmm. When I come with that attitude, they can see that crystal clear. And I think that's the type of attitude, whether you are, you feel like you're the younger or the older one, when you come to the meeting board and bring that, that's when the appreciation and understanding is. And, and so if you're listening and you feel like, oh, but I often feel like I'm actually the old one, like everyone else is a millennial in my office and I feel left out. Well, think about how maybe the way you're communicating that you might have empowered them, but also discouraged them. Is there a way that you can open up a conversation? And vice versa, if you feel like, hey, I'm the only one, everyone looks different than me, I'm the only brown one in my office, well, that's okay too, because think about, again, what was the point that you build bridges? So again, I think all of this, no matter it's culture or team building, it's all communication and building trust mm-hmm. and starting back to the basics. So communication and building trust is the environment in which creativity can flourish. Uh, but how do you how do you get creativity? I mean, what 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 are the sources of inspiration? How do you get inspired? Where do you go, and how do you encourage others to be inspired, or where do they get these ideas? Yeah, hugely hugely important to make time for it. Uh, one thing I share with folks is. You know, think of a way about how you assess your physical health. If you know that you care about being healthy, you make time to exercise. You make time to eat well, sleep well, think positively. And that's where the effect is. It's not because you just went to the gym one day and then I'm like healthy for this year. You wouldn't believe that even if it's the most trustworthy friend. So it's the same thing with your mental muscle, which is your creativity as well. If you're not practicing, 
you're giving space to hone it, then how can you improve it? So I would start with baby steps. Like think about in your daily routine, is there a space where you can daydream regularly and be inspired? For some people, it's actually commuting in their car. I know actually I was just listening to uh, the podcast or some of the interviews by Sarah Blake on how she gets inspired. And she said her commute to work is just six minutes, but she would drive for an hour just to, for inspiration and just be um, daydreaming. Uh, I know some people who just take long walks. And for others, if you feel like I'm too busy, I don't have time for any of that, maybe it's that the next time you just watch a movie. Because I religiously make sure I take at least an hour, two hour every day, whether it's watching movies, reading a book, taking a walk after work or before. And permit me to just stay open to learn new things. And so that's one piece is just making time consistently. The second is being open to receiving and experiencing as many different inputs because going back to Jim Rohn's quote, it's not just the people, it's the input that you're receiving. So one thing that was, why I realized is when I was in my political space in nuclear world, all my input 24-7 was just nuclear. So I was learning a lot about it, but I was very uninformed of everything else in society. If you told me about the virus then, I would probably only think in nuclear context, not about anything else. And I realized how narrow-minded I was in the way I thought about it. And that's, in a way, what makes me inspired to share that more with others. Like, just keep learning and, like, expose yourself to different contents. If you're a biochem expert, just learn about something that is not biochem every day or, like, every week. Just make the intention to attend an event even. Um, the most cheesiest thing could be maybe even something you just go to an event where you know nobody else is going to be a biochem expert. And you might think, what am I going to make use of it? But you might walk away with learning at least one new thing, meeting somebody who just does not think like you. And that's the key aspect because being creative is connecting the dots in different ways. But how do you intend to do that if you're exposing, if you're not exposing yourself to different things? I, I watch um, cooking shows. That's my point of inspiration. <laughs> That's where I get inspired. Uh, these documentaries. I'm a documentary junkie. I love things that. Things like uh, um, Chef's Table and, yes. and other things like that. Uh, I, I know we can keep going on and um, it's such an interesting and fascinating conversation with you, Monica. Uh, but I, I want to ask one, one final question, uh, which we usually mm-hmm. end with, yeah. is that if, if you could meet your 18-year-old self, um, what would you tell the 18 year old Monica? I would tell her that don't worry because nothing I plan will work out anyway. <laughs> so scrap that fear and actually dream five, 10 times bigger because that very thought of making plans based on what I know is the very thing that's limiting my future not helping me grow. And I think about how much has just changed the way how we work in the office in the past 10 years. It's only going to change a lot faster. And so, especially for those who's graduating now, I tell them just don't think about learning skills for the jobs you're applying tomorrow. Like everything that you go through and learn right now might help you one day. You just might not know. Just focus on learning and enjoying it. I think that's the other thing. Just enjoy it. And you know, that will come together, but keep a lookout. Just keep trying to look for different patterns and, you know, learn through the process and enjoy because it's not going to work out the way you thought. It just will be incredibly better. 
Well, thank you, Monica. Thank you for your time and sharing about your life and just uh, just giving us uh, tips about how to be more creative in our workplace. So thank you very much, Monica. Thank you for having me. Just have fun and enjoy life. <laughs> you got it for Monica. Enjoy life. <laughs>、hope you enjoy this interview with Monica Kang. Monica reminds us that clear communication and trust building are essential ingredients for creativity to flourish in any organization. Everybody has creativity. It just needs to be encouraged, nurtured, and allowed to grow. Monica also reminds us that being able to explore outside the boundaries of the known is what allows people to carve out new ideas and new spaces to explore the unknown. In a time of uncertainty, it is ever more crucial for innovative thinkers to rise up and transform the world for the better. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of our second season of the Korean American Perspectives. We have a lot more interviews to showcase, so please subscribe to our podcast and visit our website at councilka.org for more interviews, this episode's show notes, and more. We welcome your thoughts and feedback on our social media platform, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or send us an email at podcastcouncilka.org. Thank you again, and we hope to see you next time. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.